listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 3rd March 2021. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Hello everyone, a very warm welcome to the LSE for this online event, which forms part of this year's LSE Festival, Shaping the Post-Covid World. My name is Nicola Lacey, I'm School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy at the LSE, and it's my very, very great pleasure to be chairing the event this evening. A very brief introduction, we're all painfully aware that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected everyone individually, collectively. But we also know very, very starkly now that it has affected some communities very much more than others. And today we've been lucky enough to assemble a really fantastic panel of experts to discuss the gendered dynamics of COVID-19 and gaps in preparedness, response and indeed future recovery plans in terms of the impact of COVID on women. There are many avenues we could take, obviously, in our discussion uh, this evening. But given that it's UK Budget Day, we are going to focus primarily on the economic impact of these inequalities. So I'm very delighted to welcome our panel. And first of all, we're very lucky to have Marianne Stevenson here with us this evening. Marianne is the director of the Women's Budget Group. After Marianne has spoken, uh, we will turn to Mandu Reid, who has been leader of the Women's Equality Party since April 2019 and is also the party's candidate for the 2021 mayoral election. Then third, we come to my colleague Claire Wenham, who is Associate Professor of Global Health Policy here at LSE. And then finally, but very much not least, we turn to Belle ribeiro Addy who is the Labour MP for her home constituency of Streatham. So without further ado, and with enormous thanks to all of the panellists and a further welcome to you, I'd like to hand over to Marianne. We know that over the past year, women have faced the, the greatest burden of social and economic impact of COVID. Women have done vastly more unpaid care work since both schools and nurseries are closed but also more care for older and disabled adults. Women are more likely to be working in those sectors that were completely locked down as a result of the pandemic, so high street retail, hospitality, health and beauty and so on. And they're more likely to have been furloughed, they're more likely to be living in poverty and have increased debt and they've also increased experienced increased levels of domestic violence and abuse. So you would expect the budget to address some of those issues. You would expect the budget to recognise that inequality and do something about it. And unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. So I'm going to start with a little bit about what wasn't there. There was nothing in the budget on social care at all. Even before the pandemic, we had 1.5 million people in the UK with unmet care needs. We know that number has gone up. We know the number of unpaid carers has increased dramatically over the last year. We know that there 
are very many care homes that are in a situation of crisis where they're worried whether or not they're going to survive over the next year or so. Because understandably, large numbers of people, if they can keep themselves or a loved one out of residential care at the moment, they are. And care homes were already underfunded, which meant they don't have much slack in the system to deal with empty beds. That's a big mistake because care could be one of the main ways to actually stimulate the recovery. Our research has shown that investment in care would create 2.7 times as many jobs as the same money invested in construction. There was nothing in the budget on childcare either. And again, this is surprising. We're in a situation where 58% of local authorities have warned that they think there will be childcare providers closing in their authority area. We know large numbers of women who've been made redundant in the last year said that a lack of childcare was one of the key factors in their redundancy. And again, we know that investment in childcare would be a good way to stimulate the recovery. There were some good things. Extending the the furlough, again, was something that we welcome. And I think it's important to recognise that the furlough scheme has prevented widespread unemployment. But if you look at the timing of the furlough, alongside the decision to extend universal credit for another six months, what we're looking at is a situation where the furlough scheme will end at about the point when the universal credit extension will end. So just at the point when more people are going to be needing to claim Social Security, because we have to accept the fact that even with the furlough scheme and even with the lifting of restrictions, As the scheme ends, people are going to lose their jobs. You know, there are sectors where employers are are kind of hanging on, trying to carry on paying employees, but won't be able to in the long term. At that very point, universal credit is going to fall by £20 a week. And on funding for the violence against women's sector, Rishi Sunak announced £19 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But when you look at the scale of the problem, it barely touches the sides. Women's Aid have estimated that it would take about £393 million to provide a safe and secure system of refuges across the country. So again, a really massive shortfall. And in the longer term, there really wasn't enough investment in building back the sort of equal and fair recovery that we need. You know, this is a moment for us to reflect the the pandemic has not just exacerbated the inequalities in society, it's really shone a light on them. And this should be taken as an opportunity to actually say we want to do things differently. We want to rebuild our economy in a different way. I know the Chancellor was talking a lot about the level of debt, but actually, you know, we came out of the Second World War with incredibly high levels of debt. And we chose that moment to invest in the welfare state and to build the NHS. We were at a similar moment of crisis and we needed intervention with a similar scale of ambition. And unfortunately, we didn't see that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marianne. Wonderful. So, so concise and packing so much in for us to think about and debate. So uh, very quickly, I will simply hand over now to Mandu. I am going to tell you a story about childcare. Before I begin, I just think it's really important to acknowledge that childcare providers were struggling before COVID, but the crisis has all but crushed the sector. So the first little chapter in this story is entitled, Childcare, like social care, has had virtually no voice in this pandemic. 
The earlier sector has, since the beginning of the pandemic, been forgotten and overlooked by the government, along with the parents and children who rely on it. The sector was not prioritized for PPE, testing, vaccines, or financial support. And whilst lots of column inches were written and dedicated to the discussion around schools opening and school or schools closing, childcare had sort of zero negotiating power. The Women and Equalities Committee has pointed out that there was zero reference to childcare in the summer or winter statements last year. And I suppose you can't fault the government for its consistency because as Marianne has already pointed out, today's budget statement was no different. Right, chapter two. Without representational negotiating power, the childcare sector has been kicked around, strung up and hung out to dry. In the first lockdown, the Department for Education told providers that they could access the job retention scheme without restrictions, as well as their usual public funding. Many providers furloughed a large proportion of their staff and closed on that basis. But then subsequent guidance comes out, again on the record, which says that providers will actually not, after all, be able to furlough their staff if their salaries were covered by public funding or partly by public funding and that they would be investigated for duplication of funds if they did. This U-turn meant that providers were faced with redundancies and closures. This bumbling and blundering might be amusing if it wasn't so irresponsible and wasn't guaranteed to create serious long-term consequences. Chapter three, the impact of neglecting the childcare sector is significant, especially for women. And you know what? I don't know why I've been so gentle and polite. I don't think significance the right word there. I think catastrophic is probably a more appropriate word there when you look at the economy as a whole. One in four childcare providers in England are expected to permanently close this year. A loss of around 150,000 childcare places. 70% of providers that are still open are running at a financial loss and the lack of adequate government support means that they are taking out loans in order to keep operating. These loans are going to need to be paid back at some point. And cutting staff, 92% of whom are women, by the way, and increasing fees are the most likely routes. And that's really bad news. Because unlike the rest of Europe, we have no fee caps on childcare in this country. Chapter four, maybe a little glimmer, though, of hope. There is a new consciousness around care. I did an event recently with many of you will know her, Cynthia Enloe, amazing feminist writer, theorist and professor. And she talked about how the new consciousness around care is or at least should be a gift to the feminist movement. And I think she's right in the sense that finally people have seen what is essential and they cannot now unsee it. You'd think, though, that with everything that unfolded last year, it would be harder to justify why such vital services are expected to be delivered on a shoestring by women, overwhelmingly overrepresented are black and minority ethnic women, by the way, who are often working in precarious employment and for poverty wages. But we all know that the patriarchy doesn't give up easily, and the status quo has a habit of clinging on for dear life, and today's budget is a case in point. So we have to organize and we have to create political pressure now. Chapter five, 
We need a care-led recovery. And in the spirit of the theme of this series of events shaping the post-COVID world, I'll try and give some suggestions of, of what that could look like in relation to childcare. Basically, we created the Women's Equality Party to put care on the agenda. If you want to save jobs, which the government says it wants to do, you have to invest in and reform care. If you really want to turbocharge the economy, if you really want to do that and level up, as the government says, focusing on childcare makes economic, social, and heck, even, even political sense. So what needs to be done, some concrete things that I believe would contribute to making a difference, We've got to shore up the sector in ways that require reform. We need a bailout for nurseries, just like has been mooted for the aviation industry and what we did for the banks in the wake of the financial crisis. And not just any old bailout. We need a bailout that moves the sector into public stewardship, protects salaries, lifts them to at least a living wage, plus contributions to costs and overheads. Thank you, Mandu. Again, such a sort of substantive and rich presentation and so hard hitting. So let's move on quickly to Claire. Thank you. So at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic hit, 71% of women in the UK were in some form of employment. Now, within three months, that had dropped by five percentage points and it still hasn't recovered yet. And that's also not just in the UK. These are global trends. We're seeing women being four times more likely to lose their jobs in the US, five times more likely to lose their jobs in, in Italy. And that's not even taking into account those from lower middle income countries, many of whom work in the informal economy and have been, would be completely decimated by the COVID pandemic. We're now thinking that up to 435 million women are living in extreme poverty globally. Uh, that's almost 100,000 more than this time last year. So we really need to do something about but the question we were asking is, why have women lost their jobs? And the first reason for this is that we know, and, and some of the excellent work that Mary Ann's team have done has shown that women are more likely to be furloughed. Secondly, as, as Mary Ann's pointed out, many of the sectors that have been disproportionately shut down by the, the lockdown policies that have come in disproportionately employ women. And the third way women have lost their jobs is that they have absorbed the labour associated with health security policy. The policies that were brought in by the government were focused pretty much entirely on epidemic control and epidemiological data. And as a result of that, there's been a lot of unpaid and unseen labour, which goes into actually managing. We know, for example, that globally, women have taken on an additional 6.1 hours of unpaid labour and domestic care every day, compared to men who have only taken about 4.7 hours of care. So we have seen men increasing how much work they're doing in the home but nowhere near as much how, how much women have taken on in the home. We also see a difference in the type of work they're doing, and our data showed this quite comprehensively, is that men are doing what we refer to as developmental care. They are you know, playing games with the kids, taking them to the park, doing the homeschooling, right? And it's women who are disproportionately doing non-developmental care, everything that's required to keep kids alive, doing the cooking, making sure there's food in the house, doing the washing. And so you also see a difference in the household bargaining around which activities are happening and who's doing them. And we, you know, the, the next question we had is, well, why are women absorbing this unpaid labour, right? Why is that happening? And we recognise that there are three reasons for this. The first one is the cultural gender norms, right? The gender norms in this country still permeate that childcare in the household is a woman's job. We then had, you know, as I mentioned before, with feminized sectors that are shut, a lot of women, all women being more women being furloughed, simply women are at home more and available more to take up some of this unpaid labor, which is why we're seeing more women do this. And the third one is simply the gender pay gap. 
in dual parent households, if you're making a decision about who's going to stay home and look after the kids and who's going to go to virtual work, you're going to pick the person who earns the most to keep getting the salary. So we know this is having a significant effect right now in the immediate term. Many of the women we have interviewed have basically just told us about they're completely at their bandwidth, right? They can't cope at the moment. Everything is a struggle. And this is particularly acute amongst the single mothers. And this is having a massive impact on mental health. Mental health data is globally quite compelling now, showing that the acute mental health impacts of COVID is disproportionately affecting women, and particularly women who have children under the age of 11. And so we really need to recognise this and ensure that there is support there. However, I'm also quite worried about the longer term implications of this crisis. But we know that there are long term economic impacts of crises events and also of health crises events. Now, research by by myself and by colleagues of mine, we've looked at the impact of outbreaks in previous health emergencies. We looked at during Ebola, during Zika. And these really have had significantly long term crises. So actually work by colleagues at LSE has shown that post the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, a year later after the crisis has ended, 63% of men have returned to work compared to only 17% of women. In the Zika outbreak in Brazil, now, five years after the pandemic, 90% of women who had children born with converted Zika syndrome are still out of work. So this is having long-term impacts. So I think what I wanted to say by this is this isn't new. Right. These effects were well researched and evidenced before this crisis, and the government could have done things to mitigate against them. And in fact, we told them that we spoke to the government earlier in this pandemic and said, here's our research from previous pandemics. This is what's going to happen if you don't think about gender. And the response we got from them was Liberia is not London. It won't happen here. We will be fine. This is, you know, gender equality isn't a problem here in the UK. It's something that happens elsewhere. So I think we really need to push the government on this. And we need to make sure that we can push forward for this to be able to make sure that future pandemic response plans are gender mainstreamed. Thank you so much, Claire. And another really wide ranging and taking our our view to the global scene with some very instructively similar lessons from the ones we've heard about the UK. So thanks so much. And and Belle? With the budget, however, the devil is in the detail and we've talked a lot about some of the things that were announced but one thing the chancellor did not announce from the dispatch box was the fact that the government have effectively said they're going to cut four billion per year from day-to-day public spending now we all know what the impact of cuts to public spending are on the most disadvantaged in in our society and definitely the massive impact that it has on women and we can see that from the past decade of austerity and i suppose we need to Stop asking ourselves why women are always left out in the cold because it becomes clearer with every piece of legislation that's passed and with every single budget that goes past every year. And it's that equalities are not an integral part of policymaking. We've made legislation, we've made so many interventions, but again and again, with all of those gains, making sure that we're meeting our equalities duties is always an afterthought. And in a situation of crisis, and we've seen that definitely over the pandemic, the government have secured ways in which to toss these measures out of the window. And that has massive impact moving forward. Now, we can see that furlough has been extended, but we know that many women have lost their jobs over this period of time. And because the government have made it almost 
a routine to announce extensions at the very last minute. This hasn't been able to prevent that. One thing that could be welcome is the extended self-employment scheme, which actually brings 600,000 more people underneath the banner to be able to qualify, which is good because there are many self-employed childminders who weren't able to access it at the beginning and steps have been made to make these grants available to them. But overall, as you've heard already, there have been no provisions made for the childcare sector or social care and there wasn't any in the summer economic statement or the winter economic plan and now the spring budget. That's just an absolute disgrace. We know how much that impacts women. We also see, and this goes right across different sectors and showed when certain areas were allowed to reopen and some had to stay closed. Male-dominated sectors were always very, very heavily supported throughout the pandemic. And the fuel duty freeze and extension on VAT reductions for alcohol sales help sectors that are typically male-dominated, pub owners, truck drivers and others alike. And this follows with the ongoing theme of the pandemic recovery, which has seen investment pumped into these male-dominated sectors. And again, just going back to the idea that equalities are not an integral part of policymaking, this makes such a mockery of all of the work that have been done over a number of years. And I think about the financial packages again that went through the pandemic, and they didn't carry out equality impact assessments on those. The impact of lockdown on women hasn't been assessed, and so many women have fallen through the cracks. Women on maternity leave have been wrongly placed on sick leave due to inconsistent guidance. Workers on insecure contracts were less likely to have their income topped up by their employers. And the Women and Equality Select Committees actually recommended that the government conduct and publish equality impact assessments on the self-employment scheme and other schemes. So I think that has to be done as you know an absolute base for every single piece of legislation going forward. And more and more, we're seeing the government being taken to court over a number of different things. And I remember back in 2010, when Fawcett Society took the government to court over failure to comply with the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act and the Equalities Act to eliminate unlawful discrimination. And this was over the budget they had then when they first put austerity in place. Now, the judge at the time refused to grant a judicial review, but it was very, very murky, the grounds on which he did that. He said the society had delayed too long in making its application and that such proceedings would have had a very significant impact. And he also ruled that it was unarguable because there was no prospect of a court declaring the budget unlawful. And again, I have to ask myself why. If equality is our law and the government itself have acted unlawfully, then I think it's absolutely within the court's rights to say that this budget or any other budget is unlawful. And I would like to see, particularly in a climate where the courts are more willing to challenge the government at this stage, perhaps another organisation taking the government to task. Uh, There is no point in equalities legislation if it is not abided by. Thank you so much, Belle. I think we've had four just extraordinarily rich and varied contributions. If we could have choreographed this, I don't think we could have done better because our panellists have just been superb. 